Hi, this is Lainey Cameron, and you're listening to the Best of Women's Fiction podcast, which I co-host with book blogger extraordinaire and fellow writer Ashley Hasty, founder of the Hasty Booklist. I'm an author of women's fiction, a digital nomad, and a marketing expert. And if you haven't read my multi-award-winning novel, The Exit Strategy, I'd love if you checked it out. I created this podcast to showcase authors and books I admire. This episode features Lauren Belfer, who is a New York Times bestselling author and a past winner of the Washington Post Best Novel and NPR Best Mystery of the Year prizes. She introduces us to her latest novel, Ashton Hall. We're going to be talking about Ashton Hall, which is really fascinating to me because as a Brit, it's set in Britain with a lot of history elements to it, an American coming to the UK, no less, but also it's like gothic and creepy and I've been reading some of the reviews and people are loving this book. I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Well, I'm excited to be here, Lainey. Thank you so much for having me. And where are you joining me from today? I'm joining you from my office in my apartment in New York City in the Greenwich Village neighborhood. I love living in Greenwich Village because it's so historic. Right. And the buzz and the energy. I'm a huge New York City, New York City fan. Let's start with a bit about the new book. First off, if folks don't know you, you're a New York Times bestselling author. This is not your first time around the block with this book. You've won several prizes, big awards that really impress me. This is your latest foray into a book that is set in modern times, which is a little bit different, right? Tell us more about the book. The book weaves together many different themes, but it begins when an almost 40-year-old American woman, Hannah Larson, goes to England with her nine-year-old son, Nikki, and they go there to care for an ill relative who's renting an apartment at a stately home, the Ashton Hall of the title. Little Nikki is neurodivergent, and soon after they arrive, he goes exploring in a deserted wing of the house and discovers a secret from the past, a secret that he and his mother will unravel through the course of the novel. But Ashton Hall is set in the present, as you say, uh, while being couched in a historical setting. And it touches on themes of motherhood, marriage, sexual identity, and neurodiversity. I was um, reading the reviews and how well people were reacting to different parts of this and making that little boy, it's a boy, right? Nikki, neurodivergent. Like, tell me more about that decision because it seems like it's so pivotal to the book. Like what led you there? What was your inspiration for doing that? My husband and I both have in our families more more than one child uh, who is neurodivergent. And it struck me Um, that many families have children who are neurodivergent and the issues involved are so seldom explored in fiction, very seldom explored from the parent's perspective. And I tried to show in the book the very special joys and rewards, as well as some of the challenges of raising neurodivergent children. Nikki I think is is such a character. I mean, to me, he's the the hero of the book. He has his areas of difficulty and struggle, yes, but he has such a joy about him 
Um, at least that's what I tried to give him, you know, the great joy he takes in discovering things in the world around him, even though his mother often feels, you know, he's going too far. It meant a lot to me to explore the relationship between Nikki and his mother. That's actually one of the reasons I was especially excited to have you on to talk about this book, because we love to focus on the podcast on angles that aren't covered every day in women's fiction. And so I love when someone does this and puts a character in the book who isn't a character who is often shown. Bravo. It's hard. It takes work. It takes research. And obviously you've done it really well because the reviews, people are really appreciating that angle of the book. Oh, well, thank you. It's been very moving to me when I see reviews people write to... to see them zeroing in on this relationship between Nikki and Hannah and being moved by the character of Nikki. Sometimes he does things that he really should not do that are, it's hard being his mother. It's that that I wanted to bring out, the great love and the, as I said before, the joy and the struggle of raising him. And you have some phenomenal blurbs or endorsements for this book. I saw you've got an endorsement from Fiona Davis, which is uh, lovely. We had Fiona on the podcast before. I especially loved the endorsement you got from uh, Julie Clark, who's the author of um, The Last Flight, among other books. And I loved how Julie Clark said that it's got Daphne du Maurier meets Kate Morton vibes. The setting, the skeleton, the mystery, the lovable characters. She called it an addictive read. Who doesn't want to be compared to Daphne du Maurier for goodness sakes. I was so um, touched, flattered, and humbled all at once by what Julie said because, you know, we didn't, my publisher didn't ask her for a quote for the book. I was just going through my Instagram one day and I found that. I don't know, some question what? she had been asked, what are you reading? And that was her response. And, you know, I love her work. So it's just one of those uh, serendipitous things that come along and that, um, well, I was so humbled, to put it that way, by by what she said. Such a great writer whom I admire so much. And all of the quotes, I mean, Fiona's quote, terrific writers you admire take the time to comment on your work. Um, it's very moving. Right. Fiona called it captivating, which interestingly is a very common word in the reviews. I, I, I got a little post-it here of the most common words that show up in your reviews and captivating, engrossing and immersive are the words that keep showing up again and again. So let's talk about your inspiration. Can you share anything with us about where the idea for this one came from? I first got the idea for Ashton Hall decades ago when I was invited to stay at Blickling Hall in Norfolk. That's a National Trust home. I had never known that many of the National Trust homes rent out apartments but they do. Apparently, it's a way to, well, raise money for the upkeep and also to make sure that these stately homes continue to be homes and don't just turn into museums. So I went with fantastic excitement, went over to England and went to Blickling Hall to this beautiful apartment my acquaintance was renting. After the public rooms of the house closed for the day, I was free to wander through the historic rooms of Blickling, which was quite an experience, I have to say, and a little scary too. And I was able to walk up the back stairs and go into the attics. Please tell me you didn't find any skeletons in the walls while you were there. No, but I kept okay. it. <laughs> so that's why the, the 
idea for this novel, you know, came to me when I was wandering through those attics and back corridors. And I made some notes for it then. I just kind of put it aside. Um, and I think I put it aside in retrospect because maybe I wasn't ready to, to write that yet. And it wasn't until years later when my son was grown up and my husband was invited to be a visiting fellow at an institute at Cambridge University and we went to live in England for a semester. It wasn't until then that I remembered my time at Blickling and the notes that I had made so long ago and I brought them out. And it was then that I started working on the novel, then with the perspective of having raised a child and being married. So I was finally ready to start work on it. And I'd already published three books by then. Well, I think there's a, a fascinating lesson there for aspiring authors or those who are earlier in their career about taking notes, which I think is interesting. One of the questions I love to ask is what your edit process looks like for a book like this. And I have kind of a two-part question here for you because you have been so, so successful. I mean, the awards you won just, you know, amazed and put me in awe. I've worked the same way through all the novels which is that I like to work fairly quickly in the first draft and get through to the end. I learned that when I was working on my first book, City of Light. I didn't really understand what the book was about until I finished it. And then I could see how all the threads came together. That taught me that, for me at least, and every writer works differently, I like to get all my thoughts down on paper. I mean, I do make a rough outline before I start, and I always like to know where a book is going to end. Usually I put the outline away in the drawer and seldom refer to it while I'm actually writing. But I feel this drive to get through to the end. And then in a sense, the real work begins because then I go back and I make another draft and another, I mean, sometimes five or six full drafts before I show it to my agent, um, who will then come back with, you know, notes and suggestions. And then an editor, of course, I was blessed with an extraordinary editor on this book, Susanna Porter, and we work very closely. I think a good editor like Susanna is always concerned with making the book more of what it already is. You know, not making it veer off into some new direction but making the themes that are already there stronger and clearer. You know, like many books, this book had to be cut before it was ready for publication. It was long. Most of what was cut had to do with English food and with dogs. When my editor went through it, you know, she, I often found these comments, you know, too much dog, too much dog, too much food. Why so many meals? <laughs> Um, you know, it's just very funny to me. And I loved exploring English food when I was living in England. And so I wove a lot of um, English meals into the manuscript. And one of the main characters of the book is a golden retriever named Duncan, who is based on my own uh, dear golden retriever, Jasper. I changed Jasper's name to Duncan to protect Jasper's privacy. <laughs> I think in, in retrospect, you know, I hated to lose some of the English food, and I hated to lose some of Duncan and Duncan's dog friends in the book. But now when I reread the finished uh, version of the book, I realize there's still a lot of food and still a lot of dogs. But it's, it's funny, funny, we don't, don't see it in our own writing. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so 
like I said, you've won these awards. I'm looking at a little list here. The Washington Post Best Novel, NPR Best Mystery of the Year, New York Times Notable Book. You've been a New York Times bestseller. I mean, goodness, for all the aspiring authors who are looking at you, Laura, and going like, hmm, how do I become that someday? Tell us a little bit about what advice you give. First, I want to say that it never gets easier. One would hope that like this is my fourth novel, that this would have been easier to write than my first novel. But it was just as hard, if not harder, because you know, you're starting something new and you don't know these characters and you don't know the world that they live in. The two pieces of advice that I have for writers who are just starting out, you know, the most common thing you hear, the sort of stereotypical advice for writers is write what you know. It seems to me that it's better to write what you don't know, but want to find out about. And when I was just starting out, I spent a lot of time writing stories about what I knew. I was never really felt excited about it or never really felt I was going anywhere. And it wasn't until I realized that I could write historical fiction, which had never occurred to me until I was in my early 30s. I, it just never occurred to me, even though I loved historical novels. I don't know what I was thinking. I would read historical novels, but then didn't think I could write one. Um, but when I realized that, yes, I could do that, then my work really seemed to open up. And I, because then I was exploring new things that I wanted to learn about, and I could bring that excitement into the work. In my first novel, which takes place in Buffalo in 1901, the moral issues in that book and the, the issues that the characters struggle with, those are issues that are very important to me, but I've created around them a setting. Give folks the name of that one. It's called City of Light, and it's about my hometown of Buffalo, New York in 1901. And you don't usually think of Buffalo, New York as the City of Light, but in fact, that's what it was called in 1901. I'll put the link to that and all of the books that we mentioned in the show notes on the website, Best of Women's Fiction. You can get to all of the books we talk about. And then the second piece of advice I have is never give up. Now, this was in the days before self-publishing. I probably would have gone that route long before if that had been an option. And those were also the days when you were supposed to send things out one at a time, print it out, mail it in, wait for the mailing to come back, as it always seemed to do. And then when that finally came back with a note from an editor who wanted to accept it, I thought to myself, gee, you know, don't you know that all your peers have rejected this? Why are you accepting it? But that was the thing. It was as if he was the first editor reading it. Apparently he loved it. And that was really shocking to me after all these rejections. He was the editor of a fairly prestigious journal that really taught me something, you know, just to keep going. That if you believe in the work, you think it's the best you can do, just keep going out there with it. You know, several agents rejected the book. And one agent wanted a complete rewrite. You know, she said, well, I see you've done a lot of work. So here are my notes on what you should do. That rewrite would have destroyed the novel. So again, I had to stick with what I felt was right and go on to find an agent who loved the book. And she also had suggestions, but they were suggestions that um, felt right in my heart. Agents and editors, they all have an idea of where a book could go and what it should be. You know, as a writer, you should respect their opinions. You also have to know when those opinions feel right to you. And if you wind up thinking, well, that doesn't sound right to me, but I'm going to do it anyway, because then maybe this agent will represent me. 
you know, the work is going to be false then. I know I keep referring to it that way, but that's really what it is that you you want it to be more of your original conception of it. But I think that's might... really important. Yeah, the idea of having a creative vision for what you're trying to bring into the world. And if someone's feedback helps improve on that creative vision and helps you meet that creative vision, great. But if they're suggesting a different creative vision of what they imagine the book should be, then they're not your partner. They're not the person to partner with. I talk to other writers about this a lot. Their opinion might be perfectly valid, but it doesn't mean it's what you wanted to do with that book, in which case it's not helpful and toss it away. Well, that's right. And you are also the one who goes out into the world as the face of that book. So let's talk about books because I know you're an avid reader and I would love to hear like, what would you recommend people have a read at that perhaps you've read yourself recently? I've just finished reading Horse by Geraldine Brooks. This is a book that has several narratives. It goes back and forth in time. One of the primary narrative strains in it is the legacy of racial discrimination in America. And it focuses on, on the, the black horse trainers before the Civil War, um, many, most of them enslaved. And this was a story I had never known about in any way, shape or form. Geraldine Brooks makes this story absolutely riveting. Um, I will say that I don't know anything about horses and I didn't really think I cared about horses until I read this book. I just couldn't put it down. She just makes you care so much about the people in the book and, and about the, the horses too. And I'm also reading The Matchmaker's Gift by Linda Cohen Leugman. Uh, Linda's been a guest here on the podcast. And The Matchmaker's Gift is just a magical book. I learned so much from it. Again, it goes back and forth in time. It's about a, a woman matchmaker in the early part of the 20th century here in New York and about her grand, her granddaughter who's an attorney. It's magical to read, and it also has a touch of magic in it. And usually I don't really like magical realism. I'm very much of a, you know, present, rational, <laughs> real life. But the magic, magical part of this book is so beautiful. It just really drew me in, and I wanted to believe it. And another book I'm about to start that I'm really interested in is called The Thread Collectors. And that's by Shauna Edwards and Allison Richmond. And they've written that as a team. It's about a black woman in New Orleans during the Civil War and a white Jewish woman in New York City during the Civil War and their paths cross. And it's the story is loosely based on Shauna and Allison's own family history. And it provides a perspective on the Civil War that I didn't know anything about. I mean, to hear the perspective of difficult to learn about these things, it's a part of American history that's not usually touched on by the descendants of the people who experience these things. And I think it's really important. I'm really looking forward to immersing myself in the thread collectors. I think I'm going to go seek that one out based on what you've said so far and earlier about that one. It sounds like exactly the kind of untold story that gets me really excited. Almost at the end of our time here, is there anything I missed or didn't ask you or that you didn't get to cover that you wanted to make sure you said during our talk here? I always like to talk for a minute 
about why I designed the research in the novel the way I did. The character of Hannah Larson uh, recreates a family from the Tudor era, and she recreates them by looking at their account ledgers, and so the records of things they bought, and also at their library registers, so lists of things they checked out of the library. The idea of unraveling these lives from the past in this way feels very close to me. I, my family came from Eastern Europe, and many members of my family were uh, caught up in the Holocaust and murdered in Europe during the Holocaust. And when I went back and tried to find the town that they were from and find anything I could about their lives, you know, I started reading business directories and looking at old documents and trying to find birth records and death records. I started to think, well, what would historians of the future find about me if they began looking at my life? What with so much being online now and there not being um, physical letters that people exchange? And I thought, well, people would have financial records, my credit card bills, my bank statements, tax returns, and they would have library records. Because I've been an avid reader since I was very young, and if someone had a list of all the books I've checked out of all the libraries wherever I've lived since I was a little girl, they would know a lot about me, probably more than I would ever want them to know. And so I thought, as I was contemplating how to write Ashton Hall, that I would use these two things, that I would allow Hannah in the novel to use these account ledgers and see how she could recreate the family based on the tapestries they put on their walls and the velvet nightcaps that they wore to bed. And I based all of this on Tudor era account ledgers that I found. And then That's I created a, a library register for them, lists of books that they checked out of their family library actual books that they could have read. When I think about the novel, when I try to, when I reread it now, I feel those people coming alive in my mind based on these things that they bought and these books that they read. And that's kind of cool for me. I, <laughs> I just hope that's awesome. that readers would feel the same as they read the book. And if folks want to follow you, connect with you, hear other interviews you do, what's the best place? Where do you share the most? Mostly on Instagram. So at Lauren Belfer one on Instagram. And then second on Facebook, author Lauren Belfer. Book and a little bit on Twitter, but that's not really where I go. And then my website always has updates on what I'm doing. I'll put all those links on the episode page at bestofwomensfiction.com. I just want to say thank you for writing such a beautiful book, which took so much effort. I can tell from your passion, the amount of research that went into it as well. And I'm so glad we got to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for joining me, Lauren. Thank you so much, Lainey. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thanks for the great questions. On our website, you can find links to the books mentioned in this episode, the author's social media, and the video version. We also have a newsletter where you can stay up to date on new episodes. For all of that, please visit us at www.bestofwomensfiction.com. 